Hello, and welcome to the first ever episode of The Daily Weekly. I'm Timothy Cohn, a senior news editor at the Michigan Daily, the sole five-day circulation paper at the University of Michigan, as well as in the city of Ann Arbor and the broader Washtenaw County area. On this podcast, I'll be talking with many of the managing editors to fill you in on the must-read or must-hear stories The Daily publishes each week. The Daily Weekly will keep you up to date on noteworthy buzz from all sections of the paper. Thank you for joining us, and welcome to The Daily Weekly. I'm here with Natalie Zach, uh, a co-managing arts editor. How are you doing, Natalie? Pretty good. How are you doing? Good, thanks. So can you talk a little bit about the week that you had in arts? So we actually had a pretty big week on arts, given that we only had three days of production. Uh, this week we have our writer, Danny Hensel, out in Chicago covering the Chicago International Film Festival. It's actually a month long, but seeing as we're students, we could only cover a week of it, which is still pretty cool. And thus far, he has seen one, two, three, four, five seven movies out there, which is pretty incredible. Um, a lot of them are French. One's from Luxembourg, two are from France. Uh, one of them is actually Linklater's recent film called uh, Last, Flying Fla- Last Flag Flying, which surprisingly disappointed. It's another one of his, uh, I'd say, revisitations to one of, his, one of his older works. He doesn't traditionally create sequels, but he does go back and reuse themes, reuse ideas from previous films. We saw that last year with Everybody Wants Some, revisiting Dazed and Confused and things like that. Um, He saw a common theme between a lot of the movies of addressing political themes. One of them, actually two of them, addressed uh, gay rights and politics. One of them, he said, is reminiscent of, uh, I think he described it as reminiscent of Brokeback Mountain, but more with British social realism intact with it. So yeah, he has just been sitting out there, seeing three movies a day, uh, bringing up some articles and publishing them. So we've got a lot of content online for that. Uh, another thing that happened this week is we covered for the third year in a row um, Carytown's annual Jazz Edge Fest, which is a jazz festival that brings in artists from Ann Arbor and artists from Detroit, all to have a big jazz festival out in Carytown Concert Hall. Um, two of our, one of our new writers and one of our old writers, Ariane Fallon, covered that event. So one of them did their first interview, which is pretty exciting, and covered a jazz quartet, and someone covered the entire festival as a whole, which is pretty cool. And a third article that you can check out from Arts that's music-related is our writer Dominic Polsonelli, a resident pop-punk aficionado, uh, interviewed the lead guitarist of Citizen, Nick Ham, and talked to him about their new record and the release party that they're holding in Detroit for it, which is pretty cool. Fantastic. So I understand that over fall break you went to Austin for Austin City Limits. I did. It was fantastic. I got to see some uh, Michigan alums Wolfpack play, which is pretty awesome. They got the whole five-member band there because Corey Wong recently joined them permanently as a member, a semi-permanent member. He's been touring with them all festival and Antoine Stanley on vocals, which was pretty cool. Is Antoine Stanley now a permanent member? Um, I don't believe he's permanent, but he has been touring with them in Europe and at Austin, so he's been a pretty steady presence in the band for a while. Um, But yeah, we reached out to, to them for an interview. Not surprised they said no. We've covered them extensively in the past, so they're probably pretty sick of us. Uh, but yeah, no, it was incredible. Next to Wolfpack, there was Bad, Bad, Not Good. There was Solange. There was uh, The Killers, who I will continuously freak out to as long as I live. Um, we had a writer see Gorillas and cover that. So yeah, check that out next Monday or Tuesday. Coming at you soon. Fantastic. Thanks, Natalie. You're so welcome. 
I'm here with Alexa St. John, the managing news editor. How are you, Alexa? I'm doing great. How are you today? Good, thanks. So can you tell me about the busy week on news? Yeah, absolutely. Well, our week really started off um, with uh, kind of a little bit of a controversy at City Council this week. Um, so Monday night, City Council convened uh, to talk about a number of things, but you know the biggest uh, the biggest issue here was that four council members actually knelt during the Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, now we know that this kind of takes along with the national uh, attention towards kneeling during uh, football games. Um, we also had kneeling at our own uh, football game at the Michigan Michigan State game uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and so uh, City Council brought it even more locally. Um, we had the four members, Jason Frenzel, Sumi Kalisopathy, Chip Smith, and Chuck Warpahowski. Uh, they all knelt, um, and it, it honestly has made national news by now. Right, right, and this does come on the heels of a couple of dramatic things at the University of Michigan itself. Um, so we did see Dana Green take a knee on the dive for about 22 hours uh, pretty recently, and so the, the, this is a, a kind of protest that we're seeing a lot more of recently, um, and something that's being used more at Michigan uh, in response to different sort of racist incidents and and um, allegations of structural racism. So that was a really big story. Um, and I understand it also was picked up by CNN. Yes, yes, absolutely. And so um, kind of the picture of the four council members kneeling uh, really has gone uh, has gone viral so much so that, like you said, CNN picked it up. And, you know, it's really interesting what one of the council members said, Chuck Warpowski, um, he said that, you know, for him to take a knee is really an act of attention, concern, and respect. And so um, they're really not trying to do something controversial. Um, they're really trying to gain respect uh, in a symbolic format, of course. Um, following that at City Council, the um, controversial deer call within the city of Ann Arbor was also brought up yet again. Uh, this is something we've been seeing for a couple of years now here in Ann Arbor, and uh, the resolution uh, that was on the table would approve another $110,000 to completely fund the estimated 2018 budget of the project. Um, and so, like I said, you know, this is another issue that we've been seeing for a couple years now, and it's not going away anytime soon. Uh, but this was our reporter Morgan Schoen's first time at City Council, and hopefully he'll be back. He did a great job. Can you tell me about some of the other news that came out of this week? Uh, yeah, so uh, one of the follow-ups that we did, actually one that I wrote, uh, was regarding the new Precision Health Initiative that the university is kind of working on. So uh, University President Mark Schlissel kind of announced this um, initiative at his leadership breakfast uh, earlier this month. And essentially, kind of this, uh, this initiative is planning to... Um, kind of collect discovery, treatment, and implementation with kind of this idea of big data and analytics with, you know, research uh, information uh, in order to better kind of optimize, uh, you know, personalized healthcare. And so there's a lot of misconceptions about um, precision medicine. Um, and so the reason they chose kind of this name, Precision Health, is because they are trying to incorporate many other factors. This can include things like lifestyle or, you know, environmental factors or family history, things that we don't typically associate with health uh, right off the bat. And so uh, this initiative, it's still kind of in its initial stages here, but one of the first projects that's underway is regarding the opioid epidemic that not only have we been seeing this in the city of Ann Arbor, but also nationwide. Um, it's been a huge issue. And so, uh, you know, these researchers are really working to address prevention first rather than having to treat addiction afterwards. Um, you know, certainly the initiative is going to be able to uh, analyze treatment from all stages. Um, 
But, you know, this is another kind of multidisciplinary and very innovative thing that they're doing here that is able to draw on the collaboration of nearly all 19 schools and colleges that we have to offer. Right, right. And I also understand that there was a bit of a controversy this week involving the Bentley Historical Library. Yeah, so that was another uh, one of our big stories here. Jennifer Muir, our staff reporter, um, who has traditionally done admin coverage and now academics, uh, she wrote this article. Um, essentially, um, a retired ophthalmologist, John Tanton, he was kind of an activist that opposed immigration and also founded the Federation for American Immigration Reform, um, donated several several boxes of documents to the Bentley Historical Library, uh, which is located on North Campus here. And um, only 14 of the 25 boxes that he donated here are currently open to the public for research, um, and 11 of those will be classified until the year 2035. Uh, and so the University of Michigan um, has been blocking kind of the release of these records, of a FOIA request for the release of these closed records, um, you know, because they really believe in kind of the restrictions that collections have. And um, th this is really honestly a common issue that we haven't really seen much of, but apparently it's a common issue that, you know, donors agree to give uh, collections and they want some of them open to the public and they want some of them closed until, you know, a certain time frame passes. Thanks for joining us, Alexa. See you next week. So I'm here with Daily Staff reporter Ishimori, uh, who is the author of this week's statement lead titled Fitting In, Navigating Campus Culture as an International Student. Uh, so Ishii, how are you doing? Doing great, thanks. So can you tell me a little bit about uh, the impetus for writing this piece? Yeah, so, uh, so I was born in Japan, but I lived in America for 17 years now. And I've straddled um, across you know, both of my identities as a Japanese person and an American person. And you know, growing up, you know, I lived in a, a community where there was a lot of um, Korean immigrants and also you know, a good number of Japanese immigrants. Um, so you know, I saw this ethnic clustering you know, um, where you know, people of certain ethnicities who move from one country would only um, hang out with people from that uh, ethnicity. And you know, this was from children to adults. So um, I was a very Korean heavy community. So you know, I saw that you know, even if someone immigrated from Korea, they don't really have to master English or you know, get out of their community because you, know, you can kind of just live <laughs> speaking Korean. And um, so uh, you know, I was just kind of confused when I saw that because you know, there's so much to see in the world, but you know, these people never came out of their communities. And, you know, particularly, like, my mother would all only hang out with her Japanese friends. And she would talk to, you know, my American friends, parents, every so often. But, you know, it was very surface level, I saw. So, yeah, um, I saw that and was very confused as a child. And when I came to the University of Michigan, I expected there to be less of this ethnic clustering because, you know, I thought, no, um, Everybody in the Midwest, I thought there were less Asian Americans and you know more mixing of cultures. I guess I don't know why I thought that, but I just assumed that. But I went on into campus and then I saw the same phenomenon happening um, all over again, and uh, I just wanted to find out um, why this occurs. And you know, generally, you know, domestic students they don't. Oh, as a as a social science major, I should say. I think natural science majors talk more to international students, but as a social science major, you know, I don't really have a chance to talk to international students that often. 
um, even if they are from Asia, which is the closest culture that to mine that I have. So, you know, I set out to on this journey to find out who they are and what they think and, you know, why this phenomenon occurs. Right. So the, uh, the piece is titled Fitting In, and that's really important because yeah. much of the piece focuses on uh, the way that these different students navigate being international students. Um, and in the piece, you talk a lot about how many students try to find the, the people um, of their own culture, you call it ethnic cl- right. clustering. Um, you know, can you tell me about your experience fitting in at the University of Michigan as, an, as a person of Japanese descent as well? Yeah, um, so I'm the kind of person who cannot live, you know, down south or, like, in the desert because I cannot live, you know, 50 miles away from, like, the next Asian supermarket, basically. So I think as a, you know, minority, I needed that community where people, you know, people, it's not mainstream in America, so I just needed that community where I can, you know, talk about my shared experiences with them. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I'm part of the Japan Student Association. I'm on their um, executive board, and I've been very involved. So, yeah, and even in, um, within JSA, I saw, you know, international students, you know, clustering together. And, you know, I'm, you know, I'm very much of the, Jap- of the Amer- Japanese-American side of things. So, no, I didn't talk to the Japanese students because I know many of them personally, and that would be an ethics violation. Right. Yeah, but so, you know, but but it was good to, you know, go out and talk to international students from other countries and see what makes them tick as well. Great. Uh, So can you tell me a little bit about, you know, the process of writing it? You spoke with a few different different students. Um, In in particular, you focused on, you know, one student from China and another Mm -hmm. another student from Korea. Um, Were their experiences, in your view, very similar, or were they different, and what made them different, if so? Every one of them, it was very diverse. Um, So I spoke to um, four students, mainly. Um, So one is from China, but he lived in Macau and Honduras. And one, the Korean, he's a Chinese student, the Korean student, um, so he went to middle and high school here, but he's considered international. So that's a, but he's been involved in the, you know, community that's from Korea, that came directly to college, so he's very knowledgeable about it. The uh, the Taiwanese um, person, um, so she came straight from Taiwan, and um, the Mongolian guy, I think, also came from Mongolia, but... But were the phenomenons yeah. that you were noticing about ethnic clustering mm-hmm. all very similar through those communities? Yes. Um, so the shame, so I think one of the uh, things that was a shame um, through about my interview process is that, you know, these people, you know, want to talk to me. So, you know, they don't... So they've been out there in, you know, um, trying to integrate into the American community. So they don't... They themselves don't cluster uh, that much. But they've talked about their friends and acquaintances and you know they said this phenomenon definitely happens within their communities so it's a real thing yeah yeah well thank you Ishii yeah thank you I'm here with Anna Palumbo Levy uh, who is a co-editorial page editor how are you I'm good how are you good thanks so uh, can you tell me a little bit about the content you put out this week yeah I mean so we put out a lot of content a lot of um 
columns and cartoons. We put out left sides, uh, and tonight we're actually um, putting out a, a one of our first pieces um, in what we call our Survivor Speak series. Mm -hmm. um, so the Survivor Speak series was implemented in 2016 um, under different EPEs, and um, it was the idea of one of our senior editors, Steph Trierweiler, um, to make a space on our page for survivors of sexual assault. Um, and so they got a really good number of submissions then. Um, and then this semester, we're changing it a little bit to allow for anonymous submissions. Um, and we think that will really increase the number of people who submit to our section. And I think it's really important to recognize the ramifications um, that people, the, the ramifications of um, speak of putting out a piece with your name on it with um, this type of case um, and like the idea that more people would feel comfortable talking about something that's so personal and so private uh, if they could do it anonymously. Uh, so tomorrow we're putting on a piece um, that talks about the Me Too movement. So for those of you who haven't heard, um, Me Too movement started on Twitter um, and it's grown to many social media platforms, but essentially it's people, um, survivors of sexual assault and who've been sexually harassed tweeting, posting on Facebook, on Instagram even, I've seen it, um, Me Too, to say like I have also experienced um, sexual assault or sexual misconduct just to see, um, and this was a campaign to show just the gravity of the issue um, all over. Um, and this was also in response to Harvey Weinstein, the producer and the kind of big wig in Hollywood, who um, was recently, it was recently reported that he has been sexually harassing and um, assaulting people for 30 years. Um, and the list of uh, people who have come forward against him has now grown to 40 people um, and might continue to grow. And so that's been big um, for us. So the piece uh, is by Megan Wheaton. Um, she was, um, who, and she talked about the Me Too movement and just how her experiences um, after she um, was sexually assaulted and um, how it's important. And then in the end, I think the really important part too of the piece was that she called on uh, you know, bystanders and people around her um, to say something or do something if they see um, someone maybe making a joke about consent um, or just um, sexualizing other human beings. Yeah, trying to trivialize experiences. Yeah, yeah. So. Right, yeah, and this is a very important thing. Um, and I know, I, I imagine you'd want um, survivors you know, of sexual assault to come out and feel comfortable sharing stuff with your section. So this yeah, is a good opportunity yeah. so to actually, talk about that. Um, so this is the first piece, but um, we're accepting submissions for our series. Um, through October 24th, um, 2017, um, to 11.59 p.m., um, and if you want to check out the Michigan Daily's website, um, on the right-hand side, um, there's an opinion box, and there's a link where you can submit to our series, um, and also, if the deadline passes, but you still feel compelled to submit something to our um, section, we uh, still welcome you to do so, um, but it would just change as to become more of an op-ed, but you could still always submit. Right, right, because this is not, you know, just an isolated thing. This is an right. ongoing issue, especially on college campuses around America, so. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Michigan is not immune to that. Um, so, m you know, moving on, what are some of the other pieces that stood out to you this week? 
Yeah, so I mean, um, one big piece uh, was our left side, our editorial, um, that called for more transparency. Um, this is um, on the university campus. This is in the wake of President Schlissel um, being FOIA, so FOIA being Freedom of Information Act, um, was uh, against the university, uh, the Mackinac Policy Center. Um, in light of Trump's election, um, called on the university to release President Social's emails um, and any with the word Trump in it, um, just because they felt like um, students um, who are more conservative on campus were being marginalized by um, his speech last year, post the election, where he said, um, and yeah, where he said that the large majority of us. Um, voted against hate, hatred and bigotry on campus, and he was referring to the number in the pop, um, on campus of students who said um, that they voted for, pres or for Hillary Clinton, excuse me. Um, and so they just released the emails, but they what we were kind of trying to say was that, look, these seven emails that were released about by Schlissel didn't really say much that we didn't already know about his position, um, but they took an abnormally long time to complete the FOIA request, um, and they actually didn't really get a, get to doing it until um, the Mackinac Center eventually filed a lawsuit saying you're taking way too much time for this, um, even though they had said that it would take only, a, I believe, like almost three hours to complete this request. Um, so we're just saying it's really in the interest of the university um, to complete the FOIA request because there's a lot of buildup to these emails being released, and then they there wasn't right. really anything nuanced about it. Um, and it would look better on them in terms of students who are increasingly calling for the university to generally be more transparent. Right, and it's important to remember that, that the, the remarks that Schlissel made in the wake of Donald Trump's election was made to a crowd of you know, at least over 1,000, um, I remember, uh, gathering on the diag in a vigil-style right. um, you know, form of silent protest. And so that this was, um, again, you know, underscoring how, how unsurprising his, his remarks right, were. Right, right, right. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, what what else came out of opinion this week that you like to talk about? Um, so we had a great column published um, by Evan Searles. Um, I think it's really important to kind of remember the small things as a college student. And he uh, wrote a column called um, "You Snooze, You Don't Lose." Um, and I think that's really important to underscore the importance of the of mental health and um, the importance of sleep on campus um, and being able to get enough sleep because that actually makes you function better um, in a lot of ways. And also, I think it's just really important to remember that, like, this is, like, the part, like, you know, you only have, like, your body, you only have, like, you, you like, if you expend all your energy and then, like, you know, you're, I don't, yeah, you just, it's important, I think, to remember, like, your health really comes first and your mental health, especially, um, I thought about this for me after, um, President Trump's election, like, it was really difficult for me for a while, and I just need to remember that my mental health and my sleep and, you know, eating well and all those things were super important, um, because that's just number one. I mean, academics are important, but really, you can't do all those things successfully without eating well, sleeping well, and being healthy. Exactly, um, yeah, self-care matters in all aspects. Yeah, in all aspects, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, I mean, we've had some great cartoons, um, Nia Lee, I think, had a really poignant cartoon. So in the wake of the, um, in um, in the wake of like the racist flyers um, that were pushed out a while, or the racist um, the graffiti incident the graffiti, in, yeah. in reference to the yeah. in reference to the defacing of door tags in West Quad yeah. last month, um, um, as well as the the presence of of, of white supremacist 
uh, flyers around campus and in Ann Arbor. Yeah, thank you. Um, So in the wake of all of that, um, she's pushed out a cartoon that just shows, like, the um, university, um, well, first she had kind of a series of cartoons. The first one, it was, like, the Block M standing up at a podium and, like, putting its, like, hands and, like, its fingers and its ears going, like, la, 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 and people are like, what are you going to do about it? And they're like, la, 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 like, solidarity, la, la, la. And then in the wake of um, the Vegas shooting, um, like, there's an image of, like, the United States, and it's, like, putting its fingers in its ears and it's going, la, 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 solidarity, like, la, la, la. And they're like, what are you going to do about um, mass shootings? And it's kind of just the idea that we often have these tragedies happen, we often have these um, horrible incidents on campus happen, but solidarity, just pushing out an email um, saying, oh, we're in solidarity with these people, it doesn't really do much um, when action is really what's needed. Mm -hmm. Um, And we kind of ignore these big issues, like even though we say it's so tragic, we ignore the fact that there needs to be something done about this. Right, well, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you. I'm here with Bethel Mashami, who is a co-managing sports editor. How are you? Hi, I'm good, thanks. How are you, Tim? Good, thank you. So we had a big week in football. Uh, we had a win at Indiana, and, and you were there for it. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so we traveled all of the road games, you know, the four-person football beat, and so we went to um, Bloomington, Indiana for the game. Side note, the traffic in Bloomington is crazy. They do a lot of construction in Indiana, apparently. I don't know if this is a regular thing or not, but it took us way longer than it needed to to both get into the city and then get out of it on our way, you know, back to Ann Arbor. But anyway, moving along back to the important <laughs> well, stuff. Well, Michigan roads could use some work, too. Michigan roads could definitely use some work, but I'd prefer if they'd space it out so that, you know, it didn't cause traffic backups that would last, like, an hour, you know? Right, right. You know, you want a short trip, you know, the five-hour thing that turned, but it turned into, what, six hours, six and a half, maybe? But, yeah, anyway, that's besides the point. Um, In terms of the game, though, uh, Indiana pushed Michigan more than, you know, anyone really would have ever expected going into the game. Um, Indiana is – they're a relatively solid team in the Big Ten, but they're not really contenders in any way, shape, or form on a regular basis. So um, we kind of thought, you know, as as a beat, that it would be a cautious game for them just because they were coming off, you know, the devastating Michigan State loss – um, and so it'd be an interesting question of, like, how would they respond? Um, there was, on one hand, the idea that they were going to respond by blowing them out because, you know, they were so upset that they'd had this one loss. But then, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, um, it could have been a demoralizing loss where, you know, they didn't play up to their potential. And we kind of feel like the game that actually happened fit into the latter category because... Um, there was no real reason for Indiana to be in that game the majority of the time, especially toward the end. You know, the fact that, you know, we all thought that Kron Higdon had iced the game with the uh, nearly 60-yard touchdown run, I think it was with 10 minutes left in the fourth quarter. Um, And so, like, for me, like, I was writing the game story at the time, and so I was starting to, like, craft the story and actually make sure, you know, the flash would be ready for uh, the time that the whistle was blown. But, um... But that's not at all what happened, you know. It kind of became chaotic from there um, with Indiana's, you know, touchdown pass it was. And then, you know, toward the the very, very end where there was the field goal as time expired. So, um, I mean, a lot of that, you know, which we wrote about was, you know, due to penalties that they really shouldn't. I mean, they shot themselves in the foot so many times to have a program record 16 penalties in that game. I mean, you're just asking for a loss. It's kind of 
you know, it's actually kind of surprising that they didn't lose that game with, with how poorly they were playing. I mean, not poorly, I could, just like with how sloppy they were playing, you know. Right, and it didn't resemble hardball football, which is disciplined, not a lot of mistakes on your own part. It didn't seem like that. Yeah, no, exactly. That's one of his main mantras all of the time to the team in terms of, um, you know, making sure that you don't let them beat you, that, you know, that you, that you don't beat yourselves, like you make them beat you, essentially. Um, but actually, if you look at them over the course of this season, that's kind of what they've been doing. They've been putting themselves in tough positions, um, you know, even going back to the Michigan State game, like obviously that in that one, it, it cost them dearly. But, you know, the turnovers have been an issue for this team all season long. And, you know, you can say that some of it has to do with the youth on the team and they're still growing acclimated to each other and, and learning the playbook and everything like that. But, you know, on some level, you have to understand that, you know, the game isn't all that different that you don't know how to like hold on to the football and, you know, make the small plays if the big plays aren't there. You know, there were definitely certain times in that game where, I mean, especially in Michigan State where, like, John O'Corn, like, probably shouldn't have thrown the ball when he did. But then also in Indiana, like, where he maybe waited too long and, and took a sack or he hesitated and then, like, missed his receiver. For sure, like, the Donovan Peoples-Jones one could have been um, a very deep, deep touchdown. But, um but it, but it, he like overthrew him by I don't really even know how much, but you know obviously by enough that he couldn't catch it. So right, right. So we we, we managed to pull out a win in the game though. The Michigan football team did, and um, we have this big game right. coming up at Penn State. It's a prime time whiteout game at Happy Valley. You know, can you give us a little preview of this? Yeah. So I mean, it's it's going to be the biggest game of the season for Michigan, which I mean. Granted, you would always think that Michigan State would be that or Ohio State would be that. And especially with, you know, all of the, um, all of the, like, hoopla, I guess I would say, before the Michigan State game because they did the same thing where they had a night game here at Michigan for the first time in, like, the 110-year history of the rivalry. And um, everyone was really amped about that. So you would think that maybe that would have been the biggest game. But, but no, Penn State is going all out for this one. Um I feel like a lot of it has to do with the fact that Michigan routed them last year in kind of an embarrassing fashion. It was um, the score was forty nine to ten, you know, here in Ann Arbor la- this time last year, or I think I guess it was in September of last year, um, and people were very surprised by that result. You know, not only because Penn State was expected to contend that year, but then also that they actually ended up doing so just after that Michigan game. You know. They went from that and just ran the table, you know, all the way to the Big Ten championship game where they beat um, Wisconsin, and then they played in the Rose Bowl, and that was only just it was a barely like it was the craziest, not the craziest, but it was a very very it was an chaotic right the Rose Bowl game against USC that that USC pulled out fifty two to forty nine I believe it was, um, so yeah this this was this is gonna be a big weekend for them I think that. You know, the expectations are really high for the Nittany Lions, I feel like, more than the Wolverines just because, you know, they're the number two team in the country. Um, they're, uh, people could say that, like, there's a reason, there be, there's a possibility that Michigan could win, but, like, on the surface, there's no real reason that Penn State should lose this game. Michigan is good, but they're not good enough. The defense will be there. Like, they'll be able to slow down a very high-powered, you know, Penn State offense led by um, quarterback Trace McSorley, I believe it is, and then running back Saquon Barkley. But um, 
but on the opposite end of the field, Michigan's offense is just anemic. And, you know, when you couple that with the fact that Penn State also has a very vaunted defense, um, it could it could spell trouble for Michigan on Saturday. Do you have any predictions on scores? Well, actually, I, I wrote the, the breakdown for us this week, and, and I did. I did come up with one. Um, I was still I was debating it for a little bit just because I didn't know how many points Michigan would actually ultimately score, but I, I decided ultimately that Michigan would score 10 points and Penn State would score 31. So, so a big beatdown. Yeah, I really, I, I just, I don't know, between the atmosphere, between the fact that it seems like the Nittany Lions are very eager to... Um, dispel all of the thoughts surrounding their loss last year uh, because I mean granted like they, they do have a point like they had a lot of key injuries last year there was um, an ejection for targeting I think of one of their I think it was one of their key linebackers that was sort of a questionable call um, so you know I think for them it's trying to show I mean they haven't lost a game since like when you think about that like I, I think they're going to be very very motivated for this game and not that Michigan won't be but I mean, they I feel like they've been waiting for this game for a long time, and now to have you know the environment set between you know ESPN's College Game Day being there, and then you know primetime 7:30 on ABC, whiteout with the whole crowd at Beaver Stadium. I don't know. It just looks like everything, all the intangibles at least, seem to be pointing toward Penn State. And then that doesn't even take into account the fact that I mean they are the number two team in the country, whereas Michigan right. is like. You know, 19 right now. And it kind of feels like last year when Ohio State went to Penn State and they had a, they had a whiteout primetime game and they took down Ohio State, who was, I think, at the time in the top five, I think maybe even the second team in the yeah, country. Yeah, I think they might have been the second team in the country as well. Right, so, you know, maybe they're trying to recapture some of that magic. Um, but there was also some news coming out today um, in relation to a sport that isn't football, uh, but hockey. Uh, so the, the, the UM regents voted on... Um, uh, a resolution to rename uh, the ice rink. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so, um, it, yeah, all the announcements came out today in the lead-up to the home opener for the Michigan hockey team, which is, you know, this weekend against Vermont, a uh, non-conference opponent. And so what ended up happening today is that the Regents decided to rename the, sen- like, the ice. The ice, not the actual rink, but just the ice at Yost Ice Arena, and they want to name it now Red Berenson Rink. And so, um, essentially, they just want to honor, you know, his legacy. He obviously contributed so much to the hockey program, basically, you know, built it from scratch, made it what it is, Um, obviously won the national championship back in 1997, I want to say it is. But, I mean... Regardless, I mean, his 33-year career is, is rivaled by very few Michigan coaches. He's undoubtedly a legend, and so um, I think they wanted to honor him as soon as possible, and so they came to that decision today. Um, I know that um, they're trying to implement his signature on, you know, on each side of the, the blue ice at this, the rink, and then next year they want to actually replace the center ice logo that, that currently reads Yost Ice Arena, and and they want to make it say Red Barons and Rink. So um, it's it's actually a, pre- a pretty cool honor. I'm surprised they didn't actually rename the whole rink, to be honest. Granted, I, I know how how famous and how legendary um, former coach Fielding Yost was for, for the football team back in the early part of the 20th century. But at the same time, you know, if you think about Michigan hockey, you think about Red Barons. And right. It's the house that Red built. Exactly. Right. That's exactly it. So. 
you know, his legacy is forever intertwined with that program and the program's legacy is forever intertwined with him. So, I mean, this, this for sure is the first step, but I feel like, you know, in maybe the years to come, there will be more, um, more recognition for Red Berenson because, you know, what he did for the, this Michigan hockey program, you know, it can't be, um, can't be understated. Terrific. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. This episode of The Daily Weekly was produced by me, Timothy Cohn, with help from our technical advisor, Ryan Cox, and our podcast manager, Avery Friedman.